0: Morning, everybody. Probably one of the best-known texts in all of the Bible. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said,
1: Dear Lord, we just pray that as we come and look at your word this morning, uh, as Trevor said, this is one of the best-known passages in the Bible, and sometimes these best-known passages in the Bible, we we think we know everything about them. Uh, But Lord, your word is so rich, and we just pray, Father, that as we look at this passage, that you would help us to look at it anew, uh, that you'd help us to see the uh, first few verses in this passage and how they relate to the last few, which is the ones that we often so focus on. And Lord, I just pray that today wouldn't just be head knowledge, something that we know better, but I just pray that you'd help us to put this into action, whether it's overseas or whether it's right here in Lonnie or some other part of Australia. Lord, we ask for this in your name. Amen. Now, have you ever been to a meeting with someone, a meeting that's been planned and that has a great deal of anticipation? So perhaps if you're single... Or cast your mind back if you're not single when you used to be single and there was a date with someone who just might be Mrs. Wright or um, Mr. Wright, to be your future spouse. Imagine the anticipation that you feel. Or perhaps it's a job interview for that dream job, that career that you've been heading for for years and finally you've scored the interview and you're getting ready to go to the interview. Or perhaps it's a loved one you haven't seen for years. Perhaps you have relatives in Western Australia, for example. And uh, they live in another state or another country. I'm not sure which category WA falls into. But finally, the border opens. And after two or three years, you're going to see them again. What's the feelings that you feel like just before that meeting? You know, it's more than just a normal meeting. It's more than just the g'day you say to your neighbours or maybe even what we say to each other here on a Sunday morning. But it's a highly anticipated meeting. And today we are going to talk about a very highly anticipated meeting. And this is a meeting in the region of Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. And this is with the risen Jesus. Jesus after he has risen from the dead. And it's right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, the last chapter. In fact, the last few verses of the entire Gospel, which we often call the Great Commission. Now, Jesus has only recently risen from the dead. Imagine if you were going to meet someone, you know. You've just heard that someone's risen from the dead. Can you imagine the anticipation? And Jesus has sent a message to his disciples to go to Galilee and to meet him there on a particular mountain in Galilee. We don't, really know, don't know which one it is now, but obviously the disciples knew which one to go to. He obviously had something very important to tell them. And for us, when we read through the Gospel of Matthew, now I don't know how long ago it was since you've read the Gospel of Matthew, but as readers of the Gospel of Matthew, if you'd read through the whole book, these last few sentences of the entire book are like the conclusion of the book. Everything else in the book of Matthew has been leading up to this point. This is like the take-home message, the final instructions of Jesus to us, not just to the disciples there on the mountain. And so let's have a look at those first three verses in that passage. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friends, have you ever thought about what those few words mean? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So often when we look at these last few verses of Matthew, and we think about what we call the Great Commission, we think about the next few verses, about going and making disciples of all nations. And it's true that that is important. And that is what this final speech is all about. But you can't understand those last few verses, what we often call the Great Commission, properly, if you do not understand this sentence before it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the question is, how much authority does Jesus have? All. all? Some authority? A lot of authority? Most authority? Like 99% authority? No, it is all authority. Great, great to hear you paying attention. And where does Jesus have this authority? In heaven? Yes. Just in heaven? Where else? On the earth, too. So, the Gospel of Matthew closes with Jesus talking about his authority, and that makes sense because the authority of Jesus is actually a major theme in the Gospel of Matthew. If you go through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to do a very quick survey, we will see the authority of Jesus is written all over it. So, let's have a quick look. So, I've gone a bit overboard with the PowerPoints this morning, so you'll have to look up a bit, but early on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus did many things that demonstrated his authority. For example, in the world of the miraculous, he healed a leper, he healed the centurion's servant. And so we can see that Jesus has authority over sickness. In Matthew, Jesus also calmed a massive storm in the middle of the Lake of Galilee. He calmed it just by talking to it. And we read the disciples' response in Matthew 8, 27. It says, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Any of you go out on the boats? I know you do. Um, The summers go out, don't you? Do you ever talk to the wind and the waves when it's being a bit rough? What happens? Nothing. Nothing. When Jesus talked to the wind and the waves, they calmed down. So even the weather obeys Jesus. And so we can see that Jesus has authority over nature. Not only that, but later, again on the Lake of Galilee, Jesus walks on the water. And the disciples are so amazed that we read in chapter fourteen thirty-three, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus has authority over nature, and the reason he does is because he is the Son of God, God himself. But not only does Jesus have authority over nature, Jesus taught with authority. When Jesus finished teaching his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, we read in chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because... He taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus taught with authority. So Jesus did lots of things, miracles, teaching, casting out demons, which caused other people to recognize his authority. He also claimed authority to do things that only God can do. In chapter 9, we read that Jesus healed a paralyzed man But not only does he heal him, he also forgives his sin. That is, he forgives him of all the wrong things that he has ever done. In chapter 9, verse 2, we read, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sins. Jesus also claimed authority to fulfill, that is to complete, God's law, the law that was given in the Old Testament. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, or you could say complete them. Do you and I have authority to do that? I hope not. No, we don't. But Jesus does. In other words, Jesus has authority over God's law. He has the authority to fulfill it. Jesus demonstrated his authority over all these things, showing that he has all authority. But here is the one thing that does affect us the most, because Jesus also claimed to have authority over people's lives, over your life, over my life. And if you go back in chapter 8 there were some people who wanted to follow jesus in verse 19 it says then a teacher of the law came to him that's to jesus and said teacher i will follow you wherever you go we read jesus's reply in the next few verses jesus replied foxes have dens and birds have nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head another disciple said to him lord First let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, think about Jesus' reply to these people. If Jesus said something like that to you, what would your reaction be? They were pretty bold claims of Jesus. He was telling the first guy, Pack up and leave his home. Leave behind everything he's worked for. And the second one, to put Jesus ahead of burying his own father. That's audacious. Jesus is claiming authority over people's lives. And that's the big question here then for us. Does Jesus have authority over people's lives? That is, do people actually do what Jesus tells them to do? Do they? No but he's supposed to have all authority. Sure, Jesus has authority over nature, over sickness and disease, over sin and the law. When Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves, they did what he said, they obeyed. When Jesus spoke to demons to cast them out, they did what he said, they obeyed. But when Jesus spoke to people and told them how to live, when Jesus asked some people to give up everything to follow him, did they do what Jesus said? did they obey? People do not always obey Jesus and that is the root of the whole problem. If we go right back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose to obey the devil instead of obeying God and it's been that way ever since. But will it remain that way forever? No, it won't. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that takes us back to what Jesus said on the mountain in Galilee. Matthew 28, the second half of verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, when jesus said this he's not just saying that out of the air he's actually referring back to a number of places in scripture but most particularly he is referring back to daniel chapter 7 where this prediction of his ultimate authority was made hundreds of years earlier the text is on the screen daniel 7 13 to 14 in my vision at night i look this is a vision that daniel had in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Remember, that's a title that Jesus used. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man who is mentioned here, that's Jesus, he is given authority over who? Over? You have gone to sleep now. (laughs) Over who? Yes, over all nations and peoples of every language. In other words, that's just a way of saying that he has given absolute authority over everybody, everyone, everywhere, in every part of the planet. Not just in Israel, not just in Australia, not just in Europe, but everywhere, in South Asia, in Mongolia, in Central Asia, even in New Zealand. Sorry if there's any QEs here. On that mountain in Galilee, Jesus says that all authority has been given to him. But you might ask, how can that be? In our world today, not everybody obeys Jesus. In fact, most people do not obey Jesus. And even those of us who try and obey Jesus often don't. So how can Jesus say he has all authority on earth? Well, during his public ministry Jesus called on people to recognize the authority or the rule of God's kingdom. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry we find him saying this in Matthew four seventeen. From that time on, Jesus began to preach repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is another way of saying God's rule, that God's in charge, God's authority that every single person on this planet owes their allegiance to King Jesus. One day, when Jesus returns, as in that, that uh, reading that Steve gave to us earlier, one day when Jesus returns, that allegiance will be complete. But in this age, the age between Jesus' first and his second comings, Jesus is calling on people everywhere to repent and to come under his rule. To repent from being our own boss. To repent and turn away from living by our own rules, and to recognise Jesus' authority and to live under him. And the question is, have you recognised Jesus' authority in your life? Not just a bit of authority, not just a lot of authority, but all authority. Have you recognised Jesus as your Lord and Master, as the boss of your life? But the thing is, this is not just about you, and this is not just about the, us here, gathered here today in this building. Because you see, in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, Jesus, receives authority not just over the people of the branch Christian church, but over all nations and peoples of every language, everywhere, everywhere on this planet. And the question is, is Jesus' rule, is Jesus' authority being proclaimed everywhere? And the answer is, no, it's not. But God does have a plan for his authority, his rule to be proclaimed everywhere to all people. And if we go back to our passage at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we will see what that plan is. We'll read that uh, verse 18 again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now look and see what comes next. What's the next word after that? Therefore, such a small word. Well, it is a long word, but... You know, it's a, like in the small word category, isn't it? What does therefore mean? Something before? Yep. What does therefore normally mean? Therefore. Sorry? Yes, I, I'm half here. It's hard for me to hear through the masks. <laughs> so I'll just say it. It means that there are implications for us from what Jesus has just said. Jesus has told his disciples that he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And therefore, that now means that there is something for us to do. There is something for Jesus' disciples to do, which includes you too, if you recognise Jesus' authority. And that is, that we are God's plan for spreading Jesus' authority. Jesus has all authority... How do we spread that message? Therefore, and then Jesus tells us that we are the ones to spread the word of Jesus' authority. And that's what we read in the next two verses. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." So our role is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey some of the things that Jesus has commanded us. No, everything that Jesus has commanded us. So remember what all authority means. It means everyone, everywhere, obeying Jesus in everything. And friends, this is the key point to this whole passage. If you look at verses 19 to 20, this is exactly what Jesus tells us to do. Make disciples of all nations. That means proclaiming Jesus' authority to everyone and everywhere on every corner of the planet. And then teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded so that they come completely under Jesus' authority. Not just in the easy-to-do things, but everything that Jesus has told us to do. In other words, the Great Commission of verses 19 to 20 is nothing less than Jesus enlisting us to proclaim his authority to all people. His complete and absolute authority on earth, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom, the rule and authority Of the Lord Jesus but first before we go further with this I do want to correct one misunderstanding about this passage the first word we read after therefore is the word go and because that's the first word that we read after therefore we often think that the main thing that this passage is talking about is overseas missions and that the main thing is that we go somewhere. We go to another country. We go to another country, uh, culture. It doesn't matter which one, just so long as it's not here. And that's often what we think mission is. Going somewhere, anywhere, and the more different it is to us, especially if the people are poor or they look different to us or they eat food that's strange to us, then we think that that is mission. Now, it is true that the word go is there, But grammatically, in the original Greek, it is actually not the main verb in this sentence. The main verb of this sentence, where the focus is, is on make disciples. The focus of what Jesus is saying is not on going somewhere exotic, but it is on making disciples. And by a disciple, we mean someone who turns away from doing their own thing running their life their own way, and who accepts the authority of Jesus. Now, who does it say here that we are to make disciples of? All the nations. Now, this is a confusing term. When we think of the term word nations, we usually think of countries. So like Australia, India, Malaysia, Japan, Canada. How do you make disciples of countries? Well, the word here doesn't mean nations in the sense that we often think of it. The Greek word here, and I know you shouldn't really throw Greek out too much in a sermon, but I will today, because you may have heard of the word already, is the word ethne. Has anyone heard of that word, ethne? Okay, so I thought some of you might have heard of it. It is a very common word in the Bible. And when it's translated from the Greek into English, it's usually translated one of three ways into English, not always the same way. One of the ways is Gentiles, it's one of the most common ways, another way is pagans, and then another way is nations. Now, from an English speaker's point of view, those three words don't really look anything like each other, Gentiles, pagans, or nations. But if you put yourself in the mindset of one of Jesus' Jewish disciples 2,000 years ago, they actually do make sense as being the same sorts of people. And that is because Gentiles... Are people who aren't Jews. That it means they are outside of our group. They are outsiders. Pagans are people who have a different religious belief than we do. In other words they are outsiders. The nations, the nations when you read it in the Bible is normally shorthand for other nations. In other words foreign nations. So they are foreigners. In other words they are also outsiders. So in other words, the Greek word ethne means someone who is not in my group. The singular was used for someone in my group, but ethne is a plural form and it means for some people who are not in my group, like we would call them foreigners or outsiders or other people, us in the them and us. So what basically Jesus is saying in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen when he says to make disciples of all the ethne is to go and make disciples of all the outsiders, That is, everyone who is not already a disciple of Jesus. We would call them non-Christians. And that makes sense, because if Jesus' authority is to be spread to everyone, it needs to be first and foremost spread to those who do not already know about his authority, to people who are not Christians. For us, this means that we need to be intentional in looking for where those outsiders are, where the non-Christians are. And coming back now to that word go, it is important there in the Great Commission. And the reason it's there is that when we see where the non-Christians are, then we need to go to them. We cannot just stay inside the Christian world, inside the church. We must go to where the unbelievers are, whether they're across the road or across the world. So we need to ask then where are the unbelievers well all you need to do is step outside the door of this church and you'll find them pretty fast but i want to look at this two aspects of this firstly at the global level and secondly at the local level first let's have a look at the global level i find that christians often they're all for the global level and ignore the local level or the other way around but they're both important If we have a look at this map, this is not a normal map of the world. This is a map of the world that is based on where people have heard the gospel and where there are Christians. The red shows where what we call unreached people. That is, people who live in the red parts of this map have probably never heard the gospel in their entire lives and the vast majority of them will never meet a Christian in their entire lives. Can you imagine that? And that's also the yellow. The yellow is like the more traditionally nominal places, like in Europe, but, but really it's a nominal thing, it's post-Christian, so they're pretty much like the red areas. So the yellow and the red areas are those places where people really do not have access to the Gospel. The green areas are areas where people do have an opportunity to hear the Gospel, and there are at least a few percentage of the population who are Christians. And if we have a quick glance at the world statistics... It shows us that the spread of Christianity across the world is not even. Some places in the world have relatively high percentages of real, committed, Bible-believing Christians who take the authority of Jesus seriously. And the most Christian places in this world are coloured green on this map on the screen. And some of the most Christian countries in the world may surprise you. Where are they? Can someone... Tell me what you've noticed up there on the map. Where are some of the most Christian places in the world? Kenya, Kenya. yes. <laughs> Anywhere else? South America, I heard someone say. Yep, if I heard correctly. Yeah. So I'm just going to throw a few stats up. These are, according to Operation World, the most Christian places in the world, and I don't mean nominal Christian, I mean real Bible-believing Christians. So someone said, Kenya, so you've got the, that's right, that is apparently the most Christian country in the world, at 24% of the population. Uganda's not far behind at 18%. Closer to home in the South Pacific, now it was a bit hard on that map to see the South Pacific because there all little dots and islands, but Vanuatu, not far from us, 23%. And the Solomon Islands at 17%. That is, in those places, roughly, there is roughly one Christian for every four or five non-Christians. So you can see there should be some stick figures coming up. So one Christian, the green one, and with about four or five non-Christians. So the Christians has got a bit of work to do, but it's manageable. If we go here to Australia, now you can argue with me, until the cows come home about what the percentage here is in Australia, but very roughly speaking, and I know this is a very rough estimate estimate it's around about five percent right very roughly so that's about one in 20 so in other words many african and pacific countries are more christian than we are here in australia now let's go the other way where do you think the most non-christian places are they're the ones marked in red and yellow North north korea yeah that was an easy one sorry? Afghanistan, Afghanistan? yep. Anyone that maybe surprises you? Japan, yes. What about the yellow ones? Most of Europe? My wife's country, the Czech Republic, is a very non-Christian place, for example. So we've got the Middle East, North Africa and continental Europe and some other places as well. Let me give you some examples, and I hope showing the stick figures helps, because I know not everyone's into statistics when you say something like 0.4%. So Greece is 0.4%. That is 1 in 250 people. Imagine if you were that Christian. How easy is your job to reach those 250 people per Christian? Pretty hard? Much harder than here, isn't it? Let's go to Tunisia in North Africa. It's 0.1%. That's 1 in 9,000 people. Yes, I didn't count them all but I counted them in (laughs) batches. So it is around about 9,000 stick figures there. Can you see the scale of the problem for them? Let's now go to Turkey, the most unreached country in the world. 0.04% or 1 in 25,000. Turkey with 75 million people has only 3,000 Christians meaning if you are a Christian there, there's one Christian for every 25,000 non-Christians. Based on those percentages, if Tasmania was in Turkey, just imagine it was in Turkey for a minute, if Tasmania was in Turkey, there would just be 20 Christians in the entire state. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15, 15 20. That's you, the rest of you, and you're it for Tasmania. And it would be about three to four Christians in Launceston... So that's just the the four dingamancers there, you're it. The rest of you are non-Christians, never heard the gospel. You've never met the dingamancers, so you've never heard the gospel. So if we look at verse 18, Jesus, having all authority on earth, is his authority recognised in Turkey and places like it? No, it's not. Do the people there know of the good news? With so few Christians, how can they hear the good news, turn away from their sins, and receive eternal life? The answer is, they can't. But God has a plan for those people to hear about Jesus, about his authority, and about his death and resurrection, through whom they can receive forgiveness for their sins and eternal life. And that plan for them to hear about Jesus is... Who? Us. Us. Jesus has given us a job to do, to go and make disciples of those who are not already his disciples. And so some of us must go to these places, and we often give them the title missionaries. Well, what's that got to do with us? How do I apply it to my life? Well, firstly, some of us should be going as missionaries. People like Kate and Q&A and Peter and Anne, but we could send more. People who work in countries where very few people follow Jesus and the rest of the church should send those people and support them as they go out. And we could send more. But at the end of the day, even if we send a few more, only a few of us will actually go overseas to those unreached countries in the world. And I've found that often the rest of us look at these final verses in Matthew and we think, well, I'm not going overseas Therefore, these verses aren't for me. But they are for you. Why? Because there are plenty of people right here in Lonnie, in Tassie, in Australia, who do not recognize the kingdom of God, who do not recognize the rule of King Jesus. And if you're here today and you're one of those people, if you've not recognized the rule of Jesus in your life, I urge you to do so, to repent to turn away from doing things your own way and to trust in Jesus. And because of Jesus' death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection from the dead, in which he put death to death, if you turn away from the wrong things that you do and recognize Jesus' authority over your life, trusting him, following him, he will forgive you of all your sins and will give you eternal life. But for those of us here who already are Jesus' disciples, we have a job to do. We've seen the stats. Approximately 5% of Aussies are Bible-believing Christians. Okay, that's a lot better than Turkey, for example. But it still means that 95% are not. 19 out of 20 people are not. 19 out of 20 people around you do not recognize Jesus' rule. They're still lost in their sins. They do not have eternal life. And Jesus has told us to told us to go and make disciples of them of those unbelievers, those outsiders. And the very same principles that apply on a global level also apply on a local level. We need to be intentional about looking out for where the unbelievers are. One tendency that we often have as Christians is that we like to stick together. It's a natural human tendency to stick to people who are like us. We like to work with other Christians. We like to hang out with only with other Christians. And the problem with that is, if we only hang out with other Christians, it's not being biblical. It's not obeying Jesus. Why? Because Jesus told us to make disciples of who? Yes. Did he tell us to make disciples of other Christians? No, he told us to make disciples of the outsiders, of the non-believers. Friends, in your community where you are, there are heaps of people who are outside the orbit of Christian influence. The people you work with, that's probably the primary mission field that most of us will have. The people you study with, most of them do not come to church on a Sunday. But Jesus' authority needs to spread to them too and we need to be intentional about reaching them. How do we do that we can do it in lots of ways for example when you are planning your career or thinking about what sort of job you might do don't just think of the money or the benefits or what you like doing the most but think about what job is going to put me in touch with non-believers what job is going to give me opportunities to build relationships with non-christians so that i can tell them about jesus and his kingdom Think of joining a club or getting to know your neighbours. We've been trying to do that. It's not that easy in our culture to do that, but we've been trying. I want to challenge us all to start thinking like a missionary, a missionary to the non-believers of Lonnie, and start making choices in the way we live that will put us in meaningful contact with unbelievers. And for those of you in a non-Christian working environment, sometimes that can get you down, can't it? but I want you to rejoice in that opportunity you have. I'm going to be very honest with you now. I'm a Bible translator. I used to be a pastor. Guess how many non-Christians I work with? Zero, virtually zero. But I used to be in the secular workforce. And from time to time, I look back when I was in the secular workforce, and I miss it. I had so many opportunities to share the gospel, that I don't have now. I had fantastic opportunities to share my faith with outsiders. You can imagine when you're teaching someone to fly and you're stuck for a few hours in a plane, you've got great opportunities to share. And some of you also have those opportunities. I had opportunities to share with unbelievers, with Muslim people, with Buddhist people, with atheists, with gay people, with people who live for money or pleasure, with people who mock God. As Christians, we often avoid people who aren't like us. We stick to ourselves. But if we do that and we don't reach out, then Jesus' rule is not being extended to everyone. And his name is not being glorified by all people. Jesus is telling us, do not avoid non-Christians. On the contrary, go and make disciples of them, of the outsiders, from ordinary, everyday people who are not Christians, from gay people, from Muslims, from blasphemers, from people with a foul mouth, from nominal Christians, from anyone who's outside God's kingdom, most normal, everyday, typical Aussies, as well as all the other sorts of people who live in our country. Why? Because that's God's plan for growing his kingdom. For some reason, God has chosen us to be the ones to proclaim Jesus' authority. In verse 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you believe that? And if you do, then do you also believe verses 19 and 20? Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, of all the outsiders, the non-believers, that is, of all those people who don't already know Jesus, so that many of them will also turn from living the wrong way and turn to Jesus, trusting in him, and coming to live under his authority. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we think about these closing words in Matthew, that you'd help us to see how important they are. Help us, first of all, to recognize Jesus' authority in our own lives. Maybe there are areas of our lives where some of us have, well, all of us really have areas of our lives where we haven't come under your authority. Help us to do that. And one of those areas is proclaiming your gospel to everybody who hasn't heard it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray you'd help us to do that on a local level. I pray for some of us that you'd help us to do that to the unreached in countries like the red ones on that map. But even if we don't go to the red ones, I pray that you'd help us to be even looking out for people in our own community who are beyond the gospel and then supporting and praying for those who do go. Lord, we pray that you'd use us to help spread your authority over all the earth so that everyone on this planet can hear about that and hear the good news of Jesus Christ, through whom they can turn from their sins and have eternal life in your name. We ask for this in your name. Amen.